Hi, and welcome to Voices of Esalen. I'm Sam Stern. Today, my guest is Pico Iyer, British-born essayist and novelist, known for his outstanding travel writing, spanning from North Korea to Easter Island, Paraguay to Ethiopia. Iyer was a King's Scholar at Eton College and was awarded a congratulatory double first in English literature at Oxford University, then received his second master's in literature at Harvard, he taught literature at Harvard before joining Time Magazine as a writer on world affairs. After his home in Santa Barbara burned to the ground in 1990, Ira was left without any possessions. In 1992, he relocated to Nara, Japan, where he has lived since with his wife Hiroko Takeuchi. Some of his notable books include Global Soul, Jet Lag, Shopping Malls, and The Search for Home, The Open Road, The Global Journey of the 14th Dalai Lama, and most recently, The Art of Stillness. Here's my conversation with the brilliant Pico Iyer. So Pico Iyer, I've spent the week listening to interviews you've given as a way to familiarize myself with you and your work. And I have to make the comment that you seem to be one of the most gracious interviewees that I've ever heard. You seem to be gifted in the generosity of uh, allowing the person asking the questions to think that they've just asked the most wonderful question. Well, I was about to say what a beautiful introduction, but <laughs> bearing out your point. But thank you for thank you for saying that. Yes, yeah, so I was I was thinking maybe we could have kind of a, a far ranging, somewhat random interview. It doesn't without the resist the the impulse to be cohesive in, in any way. Excellent. I'm I'm all in favor of this. <laughs> well, you know, I, I I thought I might start by asking you about your habit of going to uh, Esalen's neighbor, the Hermitage in Big Sur, which uh, apparently you've gone to for more than 70 times? Yes, it's more than 90 now. I've been going there for 27 years. Uh, And so for those who don't know it, 15 minutes up the hill from Esalen is the new Kamaltali Hermitage. It's a, a, a contemplative Benedictine order, the most contemplative to the point where they're almost Zen monks in terms of their devotion to meditation, a thousand-year-old order that had the sense to set up um, this house right on the cluster of cliffs overlooking the great still blue expanse of the Pacific Ocean where we are. And I've always loved the interplay between Esalen and the Benedictine Hermitage. So it's a thousand-year-old order that's mostly about silence and prayer and worship and this is a product of the 1960s. It's about community and conversation and inquiry. And somehow they seem to go together like breathing in and breathing out. And sometimes when I'm staying up there, um, I will steal down to Esalen in the middle of the night to enjoy the baths. And often I'm, I come down here with one of the monks because there's a beautiful interaction whereby the monks lead workshops or give concerts here. And I know so many in the Esalen community steal up there. So... Uh, 27 years ago, or 28 years ago, my uh, house, my family home in Santa Barbara burned to the ground and uh, I was left with nothing, no future, no past, no object, until I bought a toothbrush from an all-night supermarket. So I was even more footloose than usual and I was sleeping on a friend's floor. And a school teacher told me about this place of silence three hours north up the coast in Big Sur. And he he took his classes uh, every spring and he said even the most fidgety 15 year old Californian boy after three days in silence 
cooled down and cleared out and sometimes never wanted to go home. So I went there and I'm not a Christian and I grew up in Anglican schools. So I had twice a day hymns and crosses and I thought I've done my life's quota of that. But they're so beautifully open minded there. There's nothing about foisting their religion on you. They just know that if they open a silent space, each person will find what he or she wants. And so as you said, uh, for all these years, I've been going sometimes for three weeks at a time. I just walk and and read and write and look at the stars. And of course, part of the beauty of being there, as of Esalen, <coughs> is freedom from the chatter and clatter of the modern world. You, you're not hearing tweets every moment. The CNN breaking news isn't bursting in on us. So that already clears ahead and lets the important stuff rise to the top yeah. and reminds us of who we really are, our deeper, better angels that get lost in the traffic jams. And then beyond that, uh, I've, of course, got to know that small community. There are about 15 monks there over 27 years, and they've become my friends. I've grown older with them, and um, we've all been kind of walking along life's path together. So that's become a very moving component. I, I went there initially for the solitude and the silence and to clear my head and remember what really I love and to go back into the world with a better sense of direction. But now I also have a deep sense of community with them. And sometimes I found that sharing silence, of course, is the richest conversation of all, that words divide and break up some deeper connection that we find again in silence. Now, uh, I've, I've come to understand that you live um, a rather simple life in your, in your home in Japan. And I'm wondering if you might do me the honor of kind of describing the existence that you, that you lead or, or a, a typical day that, that might be for you in, in Japan. Yes. It's funny. I'm laughing because uh, I'm just emerging from my final workshop. And I was saying to them, I moved from New York City to Japan so that there'd be 20 more hours in the day. <laughs> and so my wife and I, for 26 years, have shared a, a t tiny two-room rented apartment in the middle of a boring suburb that looks like the San Fernando Valley. Uh, and we have no car, no bicycle, um, no TV I can understand, no media coming in on us. And that's why the day is elongated. So... To speak to your question, I wake up in the morning, I have breakfast, I make a 10-foot commute to the little desk I share with our daughter in one corner of the room. I spend five hours writing, which is to say almost meditating, yeah. sifting through my projections and delusions and trying to find the truth on the far side of my <coughs> thoughts and words. And then after five hours, it's still only noon. And I have nine hours in front of me to take walks, to make a cup of tea, to sit on a little terrace and... Uh, give myself to an intense conversation with Herman Melville or Emily Dickinson or Marcel Proust, to go to the health club, to play furious games of ping pong with my elderly neighbours, to answer my emails from home and then still to have the whole evening free with my wife. Uh, and and so you always have to give up a few things in order to get th the things you want. But I thought I was happy to give up the seeming glamour and stability of my life in midtown Manhattan for freedom and time. You write so beautifully about this pervasive sense of globalism that we are part of, you know, and I was I was reading your book, uh, Global Soul, which I believe was published in 2000. Yes. All the more true today. Yes. I was wondering if you might have thoughts about Japan in this sense. It's a peculiar take on globalism versus a, a traditionalism. I was going to say that's a beautiful question, but you shamed me in the outset by saying I always compliment the questioner. But it's a, it's a very, very good question. And in, I mean, because my sense is that 
Japan is really falling out of the global order, precisely because it's so good at being Japan. In other words, it functions seamlessly on Japanese terms, and therefore it's not very good at being part of the international community, even the way that China and South Korea and its neighbors are good at speaking English, are good at communicating with the rest of the world, are happy to work with America, as it were. And I think Japan still. Prides itself on its difference. It's an island culture, and it likes、um, to be separate from the rest of the world. Because if it ain't broke, broke, don't fix it. It functions so beautifully, like an orchestra, in which everybody knows her part, and then they play, produce this perfect music. So why would you ever want to change that? So the challenges for Japan, for example, its treatment of women. Women, however well educated, are asked to make tea. Very few opportunities. And so, sensible Japanese women marrying foreigners, joining foreign companies, moving out entirely to places like Esalen. Its treatment of outsiders. So somebody like me, I love Japan, but they used to strip search me every time I returned to the country because they don't know what to do with somebody who's got dark skin and looks like he comes from a poor part of Asia. The treatment of the LGBT community, all of that is far behind the rest of the world, and and Japan is uneasy because they feel if they start changing, they're going to lose this beautiful thing that they've created. So in some ways, to speak to your question, I think they've done a remarkable job of sustaining their tradition.、And、what I love about Japan. Is in the midst of skyscrapers and burger joints and baseball stadiums, you're still in this eighth-century culture where my wife puts salt outside our door to protect us and and prays every morning at her household altar before going to sell English high-fashion clothes in a department store. And it's fused with this these ancient grounding values. But it's been very slow to change, and I think as the years go on through the 21st century, it's. The pressure is going to be greater and greater on it somehow to adapt, and it's not necessarily going to know what to do with it. So you're right; it's in some ways the least globalized place. And for me, as a kind of wanderer belonging to many places, of course, that's part of the attraction. It's so stable, strong sense of community, still lives by old-fashioned family values. So I can partake of that vicariously, but I, I'm worried for my kindred spirit, Japan.、Mm-hmm. Now you do speak of yourself, sort of a、um, almost as a character within this plot of、uh, pervasive globalism.、Mm. Your story is 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 quite dramatic, and, and I'm wondering if you'll be able to speak about、um, this sense of homelessness, and, and particularly that brought you and your your parents to California when you were a young young man. Yes,、um, so I was born in Oxford, <coughs> England, in 1957. Both my parents are from India, but of course they'd grown up in British India, so in fact their only common language is English. I never even heard an, a single word of any Indian language spoken, and they couldn't speak between themselves in any.、Uh, and then when I was seven years old,、uh, they moved to Santa Barbara, California, in the middle of the sixties. So from the time I was in the second, they, they moved to teach. They did. They were both、um, professors, and actually, my father <coughs> was recruited by a think tank in the hills of Montecito, California, with this quintessential California of the '60s vision, akin to Esalen, of bringing the interesting people from all around the globe together and just having them talk and trying to make a new future. It didn't do as well as Esalen. I think Esalen's the rare survivor that's known how to make that work. This one faded in a few years, but they had the benefit of bringing my. Parents and me over, and so by the time I was in the second grade, I was this funny little kid with an Indian name and complexion, and an English voice and an American green card. And in those days, it seemed a very unusual position. And when I was growing up in England in the sixties, I never saw a kid with dark skin. It's remarkable to 
think of that now, really? but it was the case. And even in Santa Barbara, with despite the, the Hispanic community, very, very few people, I really stood out. Um, I, I had a friend who, who joined my class in England when I was nine years old. He said he'd never seen a dark skin before. Mm. Growing up around London in the 60s, extraordinary to think yes. how quickly the world is changing. Yes. And so as a kid, I thought, well, this is quite a lucky perspective because I've been given three sets of eyes. I can see everything in many different ways and I can bring my different homes into fresh combinations and I can see England as a Californian might and California as an England might and an English person might and appreciate things more. And I never guessed then that what seemed such a rare position then would quickly become almost the norm. So if you go to London today, the average person in London was born in another country. In other words, was like me, is what used to be called a foreigner. Toronto, the same. And of course, Los Angeles, San Francisco, New York, Sydney, Paris are all quickly becoming that. And so it's been a delight to me that there's this whole new community of all of us who have many homes and live in the cracks between places. Uh, And that's the way of the 21st century. So I couldn't feel lonely anymore. I think I heard that there are something like 230 million people like me and within a generation there'll be 460 million. We'll be the third largest nation on earth. The people living in with more than one home. You write so well about the present and I don't know if it's your stock in, in trade to write about the future. What, what, how do you see the world 100 years from now? I don't know if this is what you do or not. It's what I do for a living. Yeah. Uh, and it came up in my workshop this week because I was with a friend of mine, a novelist, Janet, Janet Fitch, who's fascinated by the past because she was born and grew up in Los Angeles. Mm. So she went to study in England. She goes to Russia all the time. She's drawn to old cultures. And I said to her, I grew up in an old place, Oxford, England, to parents from an even older place, India. So I'm fascinated by the future. <coughs> and... Um, I know a lot of people are worried about the state of the US right now, but I'm, I'm an optimist because I think the whole world is moving in a positive direction. And incrementally, step by step, uh, every time some wall falls, it's our human nature to create a new wall. We're tribal creatures, we want to make divisions, and so there's this new resurgent nationalism coming up in response to internationalism. But my sense is that as I look around the Esalen community, for example, so many people have partners or friends from another country. And I remember somebody in Marin County a few years ago said to me, well, maybe I don't think so warmly towards Islam. But lo and behold, my daughter marries someone from Iran, and now my granddaughter is half Iranian, and how can I hate my granddaughter? And I think in those ways, the borders are slowly getting more and more um, irrelevant, Mm. uh, even if many governments want to try to reinforce them. Um, And of course, there's a tragedy now of the refugee situation, people who never wanted to leave home and suddenly have to think about home and community in a different way. Um, And I'm part of the privileged handful who can choose our homes rather than I've never suffered exile or or poverty or warfare. But still, to take the whole global picture, I'm much happier that there are fewer divisions rather than more. And I think, you know, when I was a kid or 30 years ago, we used to think about black and white. And of course, we still have to sometimes. But I look at the White House. There's Mr. Obama, who can't think in black and white towns. He's black and white. And there I look at the House of Windsor, the royal family in Britain. There's Meghan Markle. She can't say think in black or white terms. She's black and white. One of the great writers in the English language, Zadie Smith, the same. And everywhere you look now, there are people who just by circumstance live outside those old divisions. And they're heralding a new world. And that's why I think Mr. Obama was the most naturally global thinker we had. Yes. You travel very frequently, and I'm wondering if there's a place that you've been to, maybe in the last two years, that has um, given you a sense of hope about the future. 
will I'll slightly cheat by saying the place that's always given me uh, a sense of hope is Canada. And it's very popular and fashionable now, but I've been traveling there every year for 25 years. And I think the beauty of Canada is, well, of course, it's much smaller than this can, our country and it's much more malleable. But with the Trudeau in the 1970s, he realized that the world was turning into a global neighborhood. And he decided instead of seeing it as a threat to see it as an opportunity and to make the most of it. So as you know, Canadians are bilingual, they travel all around the world and they've opened their borders to people from everywhere and seen how they can be greater than the sum of their parts. And sometimes when people are worried about the US uh, and I say, well, look at Canada, it has so many of the same conditions and it's turned all of this into a positive and there's an overarching vision. <clears throat> so I sometimes contrast to Toronto, which I think is a very exciting city, with let's say Los Angeles, where all the world has congregated, but it's kind of chaos and nobody has thought about trying to bring it into something more mm. transnational. But I think in Canada, that's what they're discussing um, all the time. So I'm very excited. And sometimes when I'm traveling, if I'm in a very interesting place and I hear a North American accent, I say, excuse me, are you from Toronto or Vancouver? I just assume they have to be Canadian if they're interested in the world. <laughs> I, I want to ask you about the Dalai Lama because I believe the listenership of this podcast would, would be interested. Would you mind beginning by, by speaking about the, a photograph of the Dalai Lama that you received when you were a child? <laughs> of course, yes. So I, I was blessed with parents who were philosophers and interested in many religions and knew a lot about Buddhism. So when the Dalai Lama came into exile in 1959, when I was two years old, my father was one of the relatively few people who thought for the first time in history, this great repository of wisdom and Tibetan knowledge is available to the outside world. So my father sailed all the way back from England to India and requested an audience with the newly arrived Dalai Lama. And of course, the Dalai Lama, when he came into India, was eager to talk with as many people as possible. He saw, oh, well, this is a great opportunity. In Tibet, I couldn't talk to him and now I can learn from many. So he invited my father and invited many people up to see him. And they had a rich, good talk, I think. And at the end of the talk, my father said, oh, you know, I've got this little three-year-old boy back in England. And he took a great interest in the story of Your Holiness's flight because we listened to it on the radio every day for 14 days as the Dalai Lama was escaping over the highest mountains on earth. And I think the Dalai Lama's great gift is for finding common ground with anyone, whether it's an 89-year-old grandmother or, in this case, a three-year-old boy. So he quickly found a picture of himself when he was four years old, already on the lion throne in Lhasa, already ruler of <coughs> six million Tibetans and 14 million Tibet, uh, Tibetan Buddhists. And he sent it to me through my father. And, of course, I didn't know entirely who the Dalai Lama was, but I put this picture on my desk when I was three years old. And I think every now and then I would feel so, a bit sorry for myself. I think oh, life is really hard for a little boy alone in a foreign country. Then I look at the picture and there's a four-year-old who's in charge of six million people. Puts things in perspective. I couldn't fall, feel sorry for myself anymore. <laughs> and so we moved to California, as I was saying, and I brought the picture with me and it was always on, on my desk. And then, uh, as I said, um, many, many years later, suddenly there was a forest fire and we lost everything in the world including that photograph. And in certain ways, I thought, well, that's, that's the lesson of Buddhism, that I can't hold on to the photograph. Everything is impermanent. But the values that the photograph speaks for, the, the, the philosophy it's, it points towards, that can be inside me as long as I'm alive till my dying, dying breath. The photo isn't really material in every sense because it's too material, but, but the meaning of it 
that is what I need to hold on to rather than the picture. And in some ways, I learned more from losing the photograph than from getting it. By that time, had you begun to follow him and work with him as a, as a journalist? What a good question. I had, actually. Yes, I never thought of that. But yes, so I was 33 years old when our house burned down. And um, I first went to visit His Holiness in Dharamsala with my father when I was 17. And although I couldn't really understand what he was saying, of course, it made a big impression. And then five years later, he made his first trip to the US. uh, And I went to see him. And then he started visiting more and more often in the early 80s. And again, it's hard to believe now that most people in the 80s didn't even know who the Dalai Lama was. He sounded like the abominable snowman or some figure out of myth. They didn't realize he was a living being. And so he would come to New York City where I was living and he'd hold a press conference. Four people would show up, three Tibetans and myself. And then as soon as I could, I went to Tibet itself in 1985. And that was a life-changing, heart-rending and inspiring just to, to be in this place and to see Tibetans who will walk for 3,000 miles to visit the holy temple mm-hmm. or sometimes prostrate themselves every foot of the way and you see them by the flickering candles of the Jokung temple, the grimy faces and tears streaming down because it means so much to them. I mean, I, I still to this day recommend anyone who can to go to Tibet, even though it's a sad situation because of all the recent developments, it will, it will pierce your heart. Mm. So that was very powerful. And then as the time went on, I thought, well, I've been lucky enough to have access to this remarkable man who most of the world doesn't know about. So I did a long piece about him in 1988. And then the following year, he won the Nobel Prize. And I went to visit him the day after he won the Nobel Prize. And so you're right, I had been writing and thinking a lot about him in those years. And it was easy to do so because he was so accessible because the world wasn't knocking on his door. (laughs) But you do continue to have a a relationship with uh, His Holiness. Uh, yes, he comes to Japan every November. And so for nine straight Novembers, uh, my wife and I have actually traveled by his side for every minute of his um, his working day. So that's a great privilege, eight hours a day for days on end. And one of the, when I wrote a book about him called The Open Road, one of the most moving things I learned was that the minute he concluded his 14-day flight over those mountains in 1959 mm. and arrived in safety in India, he turned to his little brother and said, now we are free. So he wasn't mourning the life he'd lost, or most of us would think, I miss my home, when will I get back? He was already looking to the future and already realizing he could do things in exile. He never could have been done in Tibet, where he was surrounded by centuries of tradition and formalism. For example, he opened up all kinds of opportunities for women in the Tibetan community. Now they can become abbots, they can, or abbesses, they can practice ritual debating. They never could before. He quickly introduced modern science into his monks' curriculum and said, you need to know what all the guys at Stanford and MIT are, are doing. And finally, he's brought democracy to um, his people. And so what strikes me about that is rather than missing the home he's lost, he's realizing he, the possibility to create a new and better home in exile. And of course, when one travels with him, he always says, well, I lost my home, but now the whole world is my home. And when you see him, you realize that's true. Yes. I mean, he's, he's always at home because he's carrying his home with him. And of course, it's much harder for most refugees to come to that position. They don't have his material resources. They don't have the adoration of the world. But it's a, it's a wonderful model yes. to aspire to, I think. Yes. Um, and that, that really home is not where we live. It's what lives inside us. Mm. Uh, and he, as you say, embodies that. Yes. Um, so in these globalized times when so many are uprooted, it, it's wonderful we have somebody to look to who's, who's seen that as a, a breakthrough in some ways. 
Let's talk about Big Sur as a destination. I've heard you speak just so eloquently about far-flung places, and I'm, I'm curious. Have you spoken about Big Sur before? And I, I'd love to hear about what your thoughts are on its most um, salient characteristics. Yes. I've never spoken about Big Sur before, even though it's really one of the places closest to my heart. And in fact... As soon as my parents moved to Santa Barbara when I was a, I was a little boy, I felt this m magnetic pull up the coast. Mm. And I can still remember soon after I got my driver's license when I was 16, I climbed into my father's red and black Plymouth Duster and I drove four hours to Big Sur just to spend a couple of hours mm. here. And then quite soon after that, I would come and sleep in the scenic turnouts, sleep in my car and kind of wake up and find a public restroom and clean my teeth, try to look res respectable. But... I think what was pulling me was the sense that everybody feels, uh, which is that as soon as you're south of maybe Carmel or north of Cambria, the outside world falls away mm. and the inner world becomes extraordinary. That's, I mean, that's what Esalen is about and why this is the place for Esalen, for thinking about the world of possibility. And the sovereign spirits here, we all know, are these tall trees and the stars beyond number and the surf crashing on the rocks, which puts us in place. We, we bow and kneel before everything that's larger than us here. And there's also this sense that you're slipping out of time and touching eternity. You know, the, the Greeks talk about chronos, which is watch time, versus kairos, which is sacred time, which is the calendar stitched together out of our life-changing movements. And I feel you step into Kairos, that this whole ground is sacred ground. And of course, it has been for the indigenous population. But it's no coincidence there are so many churches and so many transformations along this coastline. So I have been coming to Big Sur in all kinds of ways. As mentioned, I've been spending as much time as I can for 27 years at the Hermitage. I, uh, I go to uh, Deachin's Big Sur Inn quite often. And I'll go by myself. I'll um, go into the smallest room there and I'll spend the whole night just reading the journals that are beside the bed because when people come to Big Sur they've lost a love or they've lost a lover or they're creating a new life they're marking an anniversary but they're dealing with the most essential stuff in their lives and I think in Big Sur the important things all come to the surface yeah. and and that's why people come here to reorder themselves and reorient reorient themselves and recollect what um, what they they care about. My favorite um, restaurant in the world, and my wife's too, I think, is the Cafe Kiva under Nepenthe. And you don't know this, but for more than 20 years, um, we have been driving long distances through the night, my wife and I, to come to Westland between one in the morning and three in the morning. We're so desperate to be on this property that we've been doing the midnight bathing and as soon as I arrived to teach this workshop I said it's such a luxury to see <laughs> Esalen at 7 in the morning and 5 in the afternoon the whole property not just but it's because we're responding to that gravitational pull to and it's hard to be here without feeling it and you, everyone there's no need really to put words to it but I think anyone who comes here knows this is special and that's why it's drawn artists and monks and philosophers and I, I'll tell you actually that when we set foot in... So I've only stayed in Esalen once before. Mm. 31 years ago, I came and for the last seminar Joseph Campbell ever gave here. And as you know, um, he came every March during his birthday week. And this extraordinary constellation of philosophers and filmmakers and lawyers, business people would gather year after year and resume a conversation about what is life with him. So I, I was enchanted by 
those those were some of the most captivating days I've ever spent. Just listening to Joseph Campbell for five days speak on any topic under the sun. I've never had such an intellectual feast. And although that's the only time I had stayed in Esalen before this year, when I'm back in my apartment in Japan, again and again, I literally will be dreaming about this property. I will be in the bookstore walking across the lawns toward the bars. And of course, it doesn't look in my dream as it does in life, but there's something that's deep in my subconscious. And I think many people must have felt variations uh, of this. So when I arrived here this summer, actually, as soon as I, the first afternoon I got here, sort of embarrassing, but we just walked around the property and then I sat down and <laughs> I wrote a fan letter to Michael Murphy <laughs> to say what you've created here is really extraordinary. And I'm not saying this yeah. because I'm talking to you from sure. the Esalen podcast, but my life has been coming as a little boy from England in the 1960s. My life has been about watching what the, how the 60s have grown, where they've brought us, yes. the 60s in California, what has evolved yes. out of that liberating sense of possibility. And I really feel that Esalen is a place that's serious and anchored enough to have taken that possibility to keep evolving with the years and bringing in technology and Russia and all the new changes, but to remain true in a very rigorous sense to what California and Big Sur and the 1960s can be. And I tried to express it to Mr. Murphy because there's so many wonderful things that came out of that time. But this is rock solid. And I was thinking, if Plato were to build his academy, this is, this is what it would look like. If, if Emerson were to be in the 21st century, this is the Concord that he would have. Um, and uh, it's a remarkable thing. And I think because of the, the mixed bars and the beauty of the surroundings, I think sometimes people forget um, how serious and thoughtful the discourses here, mm. both just in the dining room among strangers and in the workshops. So I've just been leading um, a five-day workshop about the traveler's practice, and there were a group of, circle of us, 30 in the room. There was a former priest, there was a film producer, there was a young lawyer, there was somebody from the tech industry, a lot of people from the corporate world. Uh, there was an Iranian clinical psychologist, really people at the top of their professions, as intelligent and, and motivated as possible. But by being at the top of the professions, they can see that the professions and the outside world isn't enough. That's not where the story is. And so they all come here to be reminded of this deeper richness and to, to learn from each other. And I think before I attended a, a seminar or a workshop at Esalen, I knew the teachers were remarkable, but I never guessed that the seminarians, the people who gather, would be so richly qualified. I thought it might be kind of flaky, new agey, whatever. And it's nothing like that. Uh, you know, I think Michael, I am also a huge admirer of Michael. I've had him as a guest on this show and, and just kind of marveled, I think, you know, just scratching the surface about all the things that he's done. But one of his gifts was to bring together some of the thought leaders of the time in, in such a way with his magnetic personality and, and sort of his aims, the kind of idealistic aims that became far more than idealism. I want to ask you, who, if you had the chance now, who are some thought leaders who interest you? Who would you bring to a kind of place? Oh, I could? love that thought. So just before, while we're on Mr. Murphy, I think you touched on what, one of the important things, which is that he rooted it in philosophy and that he wasn't re rebelling against the order so much as looking to the future. I feel a very positive direction here. Yes. This is about creating something yes. rather than reacting. And Michael was 30 when he started the Esalen Institute, not 20. Yes, so it was, yes. Understandable. Well, that's exactly, that's beautiful. And in fact, I, while we were taking a walk this morning, I was saying to my wife as we looked over, um, 
if you inherit a beautiful piece of property from your grandparents, what an amazing use to put it to. I mean, and to see this was the place that that this search of coastline was ideal for Esselin and that Esselin was the thing to do. Because I, I said to my wife this morning, most of us, if they had this, we'd turn it into a beautiful house or have our friends rather. But to see that it could be a place for philosophical discussion. So, of course, I, I, I'm thrilled by the question to, to think about the thought leaders. And it's interesting because I do a series of onstage conversations in Santa Barbara with people who inspire me. And so and one of whom is Joan Halifax, whom we just mentioned, who's my next guest, who was given away in marriage by Joseph Campbell, which is a wonderful thing I just discovered two weeks ago. Uh, one of my previous guests was Krista Tippett, whom you and I were discussing uh, on the way here, whose show on being, you know, I think it's such a... It's exactly what Esalen is. It's a genuine inquiry, broad-minded into all the possible ways of how best to live. Um, and she has no assumptions and no orthodoxies, yes. but she really wants to find out from the from interesting people. Um, I was very inspired a year ago to do an event with Elizabeth Gilbert, yes. uh, who I think is one of the generous, wise people around. And there were a lot of questions that were thrown at her and her answers were actually not so different from the ones the Dalai Lama would have given. I know because I've heard him address those same questions. But coming from a, a young, smiling American woman who confesses to going through everything that all the rest of us is, has a particular force. Um, you know, Oprah Winfrey lives, lives in Santa Barbara where I do and I feel that Elizabeth Gilbert is somebody who's carrying on that same spirit into a new generation. Um, just recently I got to know um, the palliative physician B.J. Miller, and I'm really inspired by him. And in fact, he had one of the best dialogues with Krista Tippett. So he lost three of his limbs at 19, and his response was to become um, a doctor, an, oncologi an oncologist specializing in hospice care, mm -hmm. an expert on grief and loss. And although he's in his early 40s and he's like a relaxed dude that you would be drinking beers with, He's as clear-sighted and wise a soul as I've met in a long, long time. And I don't know, I mean, I'm sure, I don't know what exactly he might do at Esalen, but put him together with the right person. Um, because both because he's very unimpressed by himself, very modest and uh, full of conscience. Uh, and somehow I think life has thrown a lot of tough stuff at him. And uh, he's found how to really make, make, make a positive difference with it. And I think one of the big things we're all aware of in our society, more and more people living longer and longer, but yeah. that doesn't mean living better and better. More and more people living many years in pain or after their minds have deserted them. And I think of that as a, the human equivalent of climate change, that uh, it's just the way there'll be sunshine and hot temperatures in February. There are so many people in 93, 93 years old now, but they're not living as they would like to. And I think he's the one who has the most to offer on some of those themes. I could probably give you many more, but I restrain myself. <laughs> well, I just have a couple more questions. You've sure. been so generous with your time. Not at all. Both of you. What would you say is one of your secret superpowers? What's something that you're really good at that not many people know about? <laughs> I'm tempted to say ping pong. <laughs> Except, How good are you? <laughs> I think I'm pretty good, but my 83-year-old neighbors defeat me. Yeah, I'm lucky to win one point every three months. I, 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 um, certainly no one's ever asked me that before. But um, maybe stamina, and uh, which means form of self-discipline. I'm actually too strict with myself, 
But for a write, you know, being a writer is a long, hard slog. Much of it is involves sitting in boredom, uh, involves huge exercises of patience over years, and also nowadays you can't make a living as a writing. So it's kind of a hobby, and the world isn't much interested in it. But at an early age, I think I disciplined myself in two ways. From the age of eighteen, whenever a thought came to me, I wrote it down, and I'm very glad that I have that savings account. Um, literally scribbled it down longhand in a pad, or I could do it on an iPad now. But I'm happy. I just trained myself to do that. And every morning, as I was saying, I go to my desk and I spend my five first five hours writing. And regardless of what comes out of it or doesn't come out of it, I think that's um, it's a good way of directing myself into the day. And it means I can think about my experience. I can try to read the people around me more than I would. I can sit with my questions. So writing has become my my Esalen or my cabin in the woods that I go to every regularly and and um, take a deep breath and that allows me to go back out into the world yeah. so it's not exactly a superpower but I force myself to do those five hours and I never regret it that's great it's like five hours in the gym any, every day yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna ask you a selfish question and that is who are five writers that you could recommend that I should read <laughs> well, I don't know your tastes. I just love great writers. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't help. <laughs> the, you know, one of the great books of my lifetime is called A Fine Balance by that Canadian Indian writer Rohinton Mystery. 500-page book comparable to what you'd read in Dickens or Thomas Hardy, one of the 19th century classics about just the lives of four people uh, on the streets of Bombay. Uh, and S S Oprah actually had the good sense to select that book as one of her picks. But in my experience, it's the one book I foist on people okay. where they come back to me with tears in their eyes and say, this is the greatest book I, I can remember. Um, you can, I can never get enough of the stories of Alice Munro. So mm -hmm. I would recommend her um, very strongly. And uh, the stories of the now late writer, um, William Trevor from... Ireland. I just read for a non-fiction contemporary book, a book called Evicted by Matthew Desmond about the state of poverty in the United States. And he centers on Milwaukee and he actually lives in a trailer park. And he just talks about people below the poverty line who are therefore kicked out of their housing. And once they're kicked out of their housing, they can't apply for another house. And they just fall down this spiral of poverty. And it's happening in all our major cities. And many of us don't know what's going on. And he had the courage to live with those people for years and report it in beautiful, beautiful prose. So that's one of the books that's most um, inspired me recently. And then I suppose for a book about how to live, when my friends are feeling heavy of heart or lost, I give them uh, the book Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind by Shunryu Suzuki, the wise Japanese man who founded Zen Center in San Francisco and then the Tassahara Center. And um, when you just have to see a picture of him and you feel something clear and light and, and, and direct. And on, although there are not many people around who actually met him in person, those transcribed talks of his, I find any sentence on any page you could live with for a long time. I suppose I'd just like to close by asking you, what would be your hope for Esalen as it moves into the future, uh, as it continues to attempt to be a place where thought leaders congregate and where great ideas are spoken and heard, if not created? What would be your vision for Esalen if you, you could have your, your druthers around that? 
I think, as I was saying, the way it's developed so far is just the way I would hope it would develop. And I think maybe the most important thing is not to be subject to trends of the moment and to to fashions of thought. And I think it's remained gloriously free of that. Um, And these days, more more of us are living in the moment. And the, the internet and cell phones and CNN, all of that is encouraging us to concentrate on what's happened a minute ago and what's happening right now. And I think we have to keep our eye on on the unchanging and the eternal um, and to know that Shakespeare or, or Plato or Virginia Woolf have more to offer than the pundit we just heard on, on, on Fox News. And uh, as long as you're looking at a small screen, you can't really see the larger picture. So I, I'm so glad that Esselin has maintained its gaze on um, the larger picture. There are a lot of ideologies now um, that are quite divisive, whether it's political or every other kind. And I, I think those kind of poison the mind and none of them really help our ability to understand one another. So as I look at you, across at you in this room, I don't want to know your passport or your gender or your skin color or your religion or any of that. I just want to know you as a friend who's thinking about the same things. And I, I, I'm, I think Esalen has managed to keep true to that. And I think it should, should keep more and more true to that as the rest of the world kind of gets into very divisive, polarizing positions. I think both the left and the right are uh, brutalizing each other. And uh, I'm glad it stayed free of that. It's interesting. I've been talking to people this week about how as I see it, not knowing this community well, it's constantly evolving with society and the new demands of society, as with the, the Russian dialogue you have here. And now that take, I, I know in the current catalogue, there's one on meditation and technologies and there's one on why is, can science be sacred? And so all of those are very good because those are, those are things that people are thinking about. But at the same time, it seems to me the spirit is exactly the same. I met somebody on the Esalen staff today and she said, you came 31 years ago, you're coming now. How does it seem different? And I said, everything I cherished is still here. There's a beautiful constancy about it. And the more that can continue, um, Mr. Murphy's not going to live forever but whoever continues to be the guiding light, I hope they can just do it in in his spirit and inspired by what he's done and actually not change too much. I think now the emphasis is always on changing everything all the time and we're not far-sighted enough to make good changes. And spending time with the Dalai Lama, for example, he reads the newspapers every morning and all his examples come from the current news, but only because he's so rooted and grounded. And recently, or well, not so long ago, I found a transcript of when he talked to my father in 1959. My father wrote an article and I read every word that the Dalai Lama said to my father in 1959. And I think every one of those words are exactly how he'd answer the same question in 2018. He would choose different examples, which is the war, or the president of the moment. But, and I've never known him change. He adapts to his audiences and he's always taking in new information and refining. But deep down, he's a model of constancy. And I think that's part of why we're all so drawn to him in a world of flux. Here's, here's something strong, like a huge tree. It's not swaying with the wind. And I want Esalen to be the, one, one of these tall trees. And even though there are storms and fogs and <laughs> all kinds of things are happening, especially on the big circus line, it stays true for hundreds of years. Pico Ayer, thank you so much for joining us today. What fun. Thank you, Sam. I really enjoyed it. 
Today's show is produced in conjunction with Cheryl Franzel, Geraldine Hess, Lori Putnam, Shannon Hudson, and Ian Golden. Our music is by Nico Holloman. If you'd like to hear more episodes, please find us on iTunes. And if you like what you're hearing, take a second to rate us and write a review. You can also find all of our episodes at esalen.org. That's E-S-A-L-E-N.org. Until next time, be well.